0: Where I would encourage us to move the conversations less about the visibility of homelessness and the impact on businesses or, you know, the unsightliness of an encampment and more towards how, what kind of community do we want to be? And how do we care for the least and the last and the lost in our community?
1: Welcome to Thinking on Lincoln, the podcast on 13th and Lincoln, talking about things on 23rd and Lincoln. I'm your host, Curtis Sheldon, joined as always with my co-host, Ryan Haney, and our producer, Lindsay McSperrin, who is back. Um, we're all back. Yeah. We've been, we're all it's back true. from it's a, from summer a, a hiatus. Yeah, we all had so- all sorts of stuff going on, I guess, huh? Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, you you especially.
1: Yeah. Got married, for those who've been uh, keeping in touch with that, officially. Yeah. Worked out, everything went pretty smoothly.
2: It was a great, honeymoon. it was a great, uh, a great ceremony outdoors.
1: Yeah, wasn't too. It wasn't hot. too hot. Like, it was in
2: the shade. I mean, it was definitely hot. Yeah, but that it, it's just been a freaking hot summer. So right, um, could have been worse. Is for what sure. it is. Yeah, I was wearing sure. tweed, which was a little bit of yeah, a mistake, that was dumb. But I looked sick though. I agree. I, I agree. Was... I mean, you also looked really hot. Yeah, I was in, in the temperature sense. Yeah. It was a <laughs>
1: three-piece suit, so it was just baking in there, basically.
2: Yeah. I I I'd, I'd hate to. Well, <laughs> I'm just not
1: going to. Let's go. go there if you want.
2: I'm not going to go there. Not going right. to go there. Um, yeah, it's been a kind of a kind of a crazy summer with elections going on, and you know, got runoffs, and um, you know, VPOs filed against people here at the office, and yeah. just all kinds of craziness. That's true, so, we never uh, got to talk about that at all. No, we want to. No, I think we probably want to. We probably want to avoid that. Um, I think all that's been said, or all that needs to be said, has been said. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 things I'd probably still like to say, but you know, you know, don't need to go there. Well, it's like my uh, people people that love me tell me that you don't have to say everything that you know comes into your head. So why try to listen to that? Yeah. Uh, Anything else going on over the summer? I know we you know doing a little traveling. I was in alec or in atlanta for alec um yeah, i think you and i are i think three of us mm-hmm. i think all three of us are gonna go to spn again in atlanta, atlanta yeah. in september Atlanta twice for you yeah and um you know i'm just gonna i'm just gonna warn you guys like it was super hot and uh pretty ghetto
1: yeah, I think it'll be... I mean, September might be,
2: it should be a little better. cooler. It should be better. I'm going to go to the aquarium for sure. The food was phenomenal. I, okay, so I went to the College Football Hall of Fame while I was Ooh, there. that might be the play. I, I was planning on going by myself, but they actually had an event there. Oh, really? And uh, it was kind of cool, but I didn't walk around that much because I asked somebody else, and they were like, yeah, I walked around, but it was just like a bunch of screens, you know, like mm. TV screens kind of telling you stuff. I mean, there are a bunch of oklahoma players in the hall of fame and i thought well like that'd be cool like they probably have like some memorabilia or you know whatever and were, i was told that that was not the case now, maybe that person just didn't see the whole thing can't say for sure i'm yeah. still thinking about going back
1: i could see a lot of the schools kind of keeping the memorabilia to themselves you know what i mean like for their especially like programs like oklahoma who've probably got a pretty nice collection of stuff
2: yeah, but I have to think that like if you're the individual being inducted, you've probably got some of your own stuff that you don't mind donating. True. To be in the hall, because it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. But it, you know the part of that experience that was annoying was they uh, they had um, in this big area where you could like do a punt pass and kick thing, which I thought that was cool. Um, they had a it was like this big area and everybody was kind of hanging out. There was food and drinks and whatnot, but then there was a drumline playing almost the entire time. So you have to like scream over a drumline to talk to you know. You know, mm-hmm. I it's love like these being at a game. Well, sort <laughs> of. It, uh, like I, I love going to these events because you know I have friends that work at other state think tanks or sort of like national groups. So you know, I was hanging out with some people from the American Conservative Union, from the Clean Slate Initiative, uh, Net Choice. And I enjoy all that, but it's like having to scream over a drum line to catch yeah. up and talk about what you know everybody's doing is super annoying. It literally wouldn't work for me. No one would hear what I said.
1: People have trouble hearing you yeah. at all. That's why so. I don't like going out. People are always like, oh, he's super shy. It's like, no, you're just like, it's not worth my time, your time. No Curtis, Curtis is like,
2: I just find you to be boring. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know who's not boring? Mm. Tell me. Adam Luck. This is correct um he's dry sure he he was a great interview i think people are going to enjoy it um i think maybe we should probably tee it up a little for people just yeah i mean
1: so adam luck super impressive i didn't know he'd been in the air force or gone to harvard which is kudos to him Um, but he's been doing a lot of work um in the criminal justice space in the uh homeless uh impoverished area I um, so was currently working at City Cares, which is a kind of a network of homeless care for transitioning people from unsheltered to sheltered to housing. Um, and it was just a really interesting conversation about um, what that looks like and some of the things that we can do to maybe um, alleviate that problem.
2: Yeah, well, you and I had gone um, and toured the night shelter a couple weeks ago, um, in part because I have recommended Adam to... And this is public record, so I don't have a problem saying it. Like, I have recommended Adam to be on the jail trust for Oklahoma County. And so he and I got to talking about kind of why I thought he would be a good fit. And uh, he was like, well, why don't you come and tour the day shelter? And I had been wanting to, or the night shelter, I have been wanting to do that anyway. Uh, so you and I went and chatted with him, toured the shelter, uh, thought they were doing lots of great stuff, and thought it, it would make for a good podcast. You know, I've been reading this book called San Francisco. I think you know this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the subtitle is Why Progressives Ruin Cities and the the focus of the book is really on sheltered or unsheltered people living sort of homeless people living unsheltered in uh, with like a focus on California cities because they they tend to be some of the worst and they attract in part because of their stellar climate they attract homeless people from all over the country so it was already something that I was interested in you know how to like what are the root causes and how do we address it um and so I thought, well, let's have Adam on. And I thought he was a great, great interview. Um, it'd be great to have him on again to talk about pardon and parole board stuff. Because um, he did serve for a couple of years on the pardon and parole board, including as uh, chairman of the board. Um, but yeah, it was, I thought it was a good interview. You know, I think he and I, and we, we disagree on some things. He was a little dodgy at times, if I'm being honest. Um, but. Uh, I don't think there's anyone who's thought more about it than him. Yeah, that seems pretty evident. Or deeper. Yeah, Thou- I think no matter thought
1: what, as deep how about you it. view the issue, I think you're going to be maybe challenged a little bit in some way.
2: Yeah, because it's a super nuanced issue. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if, and we talk about this a little bit in the interview, if you're someone who thinks like, oh, well, homeless people are only there because of the decisions they made, this will challenge you. If you, which I don't know that we have any listeners like this. Actually, we do, we do occasionally. I know that. If you're someone who thinks like, oh well, homeless people are there, and it's no fault, they're unsheltered through no fault of their own. This is, you know, purely something that like, you know, they don't have any responsibility for or whatever. I think you'll also be challenged by the conversation. I hope so. It's a nuanced issue. I think it requires nuanced answers. Yeah, I think you're gonna get them here. So. Hope you enjoy. All right, we're back after about a month and a half, and we've got Adam Luck with us. Yeah. Um, excited to have you here, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to back be- in the building after yeah. seven years. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your background. You and I were talking, uh, and Curtis yeah. and I were talking about your background before before we started recording, but mm-hmm. for people who may not know you, maybe, you know, we've it's a statewide audience, I know you're really well known in Oklahoma City, but for those outside
0: the metro area, can of tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, happy to. So, I grew up in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, my wife and I both did, graduated from high school there and then served on active duty in the Air Force for five years. I was a Korean cryptologic linguist, so I went to school for two years to learn Korean and then was stationed overseas for three years after that. Um, Got out in 2011, and then finished college for two years at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Got my undergraduate degree in global security and intelligence studies, and then after that went to Harvard. No big a deal. No big <laughs> deal. <laughs> Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and did their master's in public policy program, um, focused on pre government, and government. Uh, and then spent my second year kind of focusing on justice-related issues. Uh, In between my first and second year, we were just talking about, I came back to Oklahoma and worked for Governor Fallon through a fellowship that paired state governor's offices with graduate students from Harvard. They do 10 matches every year. And so my wife and I at the time, we had our first two sons, and we were interested in coming back to Oklahoma. So I spent that summer um, visiting prisons and talking with everybody I could in the Oklahoma justice system about what was going on and just trying to get a sense of where things were at. So... um, at the time, Oklahoma had passed the Justice Reinvestment Initiative in 2011-2012. We had declined that technical assistance funding, and so the governor's office, as she was running for re-election, was trying to figure out how are they going to incorporate that into her platform if she were to be re-elected. So um, it was a really interesting couple months, just kind of diving deep into that, and it was something that had been a part of my family's story, but I had never really studied from that perspective before. So. I think going back to Boston that second year, I, I had a pretty good sense of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. So yeah, we moved back in 2015. Uh, you mentioned that I officed here for a year through the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I was the state director for Right on Crime and uh, OCPA housed that position for the year that I was here. And then um, from there worked at the E Foundation for a couple of years and then started at CityCare in 2017. And I've been there for the last five years. Um, During that time, I I served three years on the State Board of Corrections. I was appointed by Governor Fallon, visited every prison in the state, um, spent some time at each facility just uh, interviewing the educators there, the staff there, and getting a sense of what was going on within DOC. Uh, And then worked with Governor Stitt as he was elected. I was on his public safety transition team and uh, was appointed by him to the State Partner and Parole Board um, three years ago and finished that up in... Uh, in January. Cool. So, th- there's so much to, to talk about right there. I just real
1: quick wanted to ask, where were you stationed at when you were overseas? Were they in the Pacific, I assume? Or yeah, I was in South Korea. First. Okay, so that that was sense. Sense. I was the yeah. Air Force. My base. dad was in the Air Force. Um, oh, cool. Flew a lot of stuff, but he was in Korea for I think, basically a year when I was like three or four. Flying okay. helicopters, he flew Pavilos. Wow. Um, back in like the early late, I guess, in the late '90s. But, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. awesome. So. How did your, as you were kind of studying your initial um, setting of the criminal justice system, how did your perspective change or did it change as you were kind of learning more about it, um, how the systems worked and getting more schooling, getting more practical experience as you toured some of these jails? Um, yeah.
0: Well, I think the first experience coming back was really eye-opening because growing up in Oklahoma, I think we all would say we have some shared values about um, what our community should look like, what we feel like the outcome should be. And I was forced to face the reality that a lot of times those values don't line up with how we would measure the flourishing of a society. And in particular, in our justice system, it was shocking to me how often we were first in the things that we should be last in and last in the things that we should be first in. And I I just felt like that disparity was so clear in those first few months, just kind of diving into it. And so, of course, that leads to questions about why. Why is that? Why, Why do we have one of the highest incarceration rates in the world? Why do we have one of the highest female incarceration rates in the world? And at the time it was the highest. And so that kind of just led me on this journey of exploring that um, and diving really deep into it. And then of course once you get into it and you start having conversations with people who have been impacted by the justice system, people who are working in the justice system, people who have been trying to change the justice system, and you get a really good sense of, okay, there's a lot of work to be done here. So I think it was just that initial shock of like having grown up here but never really thought a lot about it. Again, it was a, a part of my parents' story, but it wasn't a part of mine, so I never had any personal experience with it outside of that. So coming back to Oklahoma and diving deep into it was something that I just felt like, okay, this this doesn't have to be this way. This can be different. And then, of course, you look at other states and realize, oh, we're not the first place to wrestle with this. We're not the first place to acknowledge this disparity between our values and what happens in our communities and we're also not the first ones to wrestle with it doesn't have to be that way it doesn't have to cost so much for so poor outcomes like we can do something different and so you know that first year working with the texas public policy foundation and their right on crime initiative was that was kind of the idea that texas was taking these things that they had done locally and helping other communities across the country who are working on these issues to say well, if Texas, Texas can do it, then, then we can try it here too. So that was encouraging to me those first couple of years was just realizing that there were a lot of other places who had wrestled with this, made progress, and gave me hope that Oklahoma could do something different too. Uh, and then after I think I think after a period of time, like you're in it enough, you just realize like, okay, I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of my life working on this. And that moment came for me, uh, you know, 2017, 2018. was just like, all right, this is something that I, I care a lot about and I want to see... Look different in my community, and uh, this is what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. Is that what led you to City Care? Um, It was interesting because at the time that I was living in Boston, you know, I had come back from Oklahoma, my wife and I, and our two boys uh, at the time were living in Boston. I had some personal experiences that, uh, in the same way that I felt like I was venturing into the margins of communities in Oklahoma. Mm as it relates to justice, I was having some similar experiences just with other groups of people on the margins of, of the community that I was living in in Boston and was opening my eyes to, again, stories that I had heard from my parents about their personal backgrounds and journeys, but I hadn't experienced myself about experiences of homelessness and cycles of substance use disorders and trauma that, that both were part of both of my parents' stories. Um, developing relationships with people who were experiencing that and again asking myself like what does this mean for me what do my values how does that implicate me in the stories of the people that I'm meeting who are having this experience and so coming back to Oklahoma it was kind of the same thing like if I'm going to live here and these are the values that I have then this has to mean something my community should look different because I live here because I have these values and so it was similar in that sense, and I just started developing relationships with people who were experiencing homelessness, living on the streets of Oklahoma City, and it was shaping my heart. And um, I was going to church with some people who were on the board at City Care, and they, over the course of a couple of years, kind of saw how my heart was growing in that direction. And the founder of City Care was retiring, so he and his wife had started City Care in 1996, and they encouraged me to to consider applying for the job and I just was like you know now I'm good you know I was working in policy I, I was doing something that I was passionate about and I didn't have a vision for what that looked like but my wife Sarah she was like you really need to think about that you know because she was had a front row seat to all this change that I was experiencing and in many ways she was she was going through it too it was something that we were experiencing as a family and so for her the idea of working at CityCare and doing that made a lot of sense and she really encouraged me to think about it and so um, it was a you know six month long process of just praying about it considering it going through the interview process and ultimately at the end it felt like that was the right next step and so now now I'm at a place where it I feel so grateful to even call it a job you know it feels like just something that I love doing um, it's it's heavy difficult work you don't see a lot of uh, things Get finished in a sense, you know. It's not like you have a sense of completion a lot. Um, you know, maybe certain projects you do, but in the work of walking alongside people in some of their you know, darkest moments, moments of deepest need, you just have to make a piece with the tension that exists in that work. Um, and so. Uh yeah, it's, it's been almost, or just over five years.
1: For those who may not know, do you want to just give a quick ex-
2: explanation of
1: what City Cares is? Sure.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask, because a minute ago I had to go ask one of our colleagues to keep it down while we record, so I wasn't sure <laughs> if we got into that
0: or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, City Care started in 1996. Larry and Maisie Bross founded it, and they started by serving a breakfast downtown at the church they were going to. And through the relationships that they developed, realized that Oklahoma City had a need for supportive housing. And so they started with an apartment complex that was downtown and then eventually applied for federal grants that allowed them to build 60 apartment units that are all under one roof called the Pershing Center. That's over off of General Pershing, uh, just west of downtown. And then over the years, they built another 52 homes in that same neighborhood in Westland Gardens. So CityCare has what we call our Supportive Communities Program, and that's the 112 units of permanent supportive housing for individuals who are transitioning out of homelessness. So they can stay there as, as long as they need to. Um, we also operated the Oklahoma City Day Shelter for eight years and we handed that program back off to the Homeless Alliance in 2019 in preparation for opening our low barrier night shelter. So this is a place that didn't exist in Oklahoma City before we opened. We, we used to have several low barrier night shelters. Um, we didn't for a couple years in 2017, 2018. Uh, and really all that means is we don't have any requirements. So you don't have to have an ID, you don't have to be in a program, you don't have to submit to a drug test or anything like that. Like, we just feel like you've got to have a place. Not only do our values lead us to believe there should be at least one open door in Oklahoma City where you can come without requirement. And you, and you both have been there, so you've seen it. You know, it's like we feel like that oftentimes is the last place people feel welcome is through the doors of the night shelter. And obviously, we want to see that change, and there are things that we're working on to make that happen. But for now, we're glad that there is a place like that, but so not only does it align with their values, but also from a best practice perspective, a community our size should have a facility like that in the continuum of services that we offer. So you can think of it as, you know, like we talked about when we walked through, it's almost like a stair step, like that becomes one of the easiest places to begin that transition out of homelessness, where we can have conversations and develop relationships and establish trust that over time allow us to do the work required for somebody to transition out of homelessness. And the reality is if you have requirements or prerequisites for somebody to begin that process, then a lot of folks just aren't gonna do it. So that's our next shelter. Um, we've been opened, uh, it was a year in April, so we opened in April of 2021. And, uh, and then we also operate the WizKids program, which is a faith-based mentoring and literacy tutoring program. They started that program in 1996, and we've got um, 32 sites that are starting in the fall. So we'll serve about 600 kids a week through that program before the pandemic goes a little bit more, but we're kinda kinda ramping back up as uh, schools and churches are getting back to meeting in person and stuff. Um, And we partner with a local church in the neighborhood of an elementary school. That's a D or an F school in Oklahoma City. And then we ask for 20 to 30 students that are the most behind in reading and in most need of that kind of relationship and help. And then we pair them with the same tutor and they meet every week, all school year long. And on average, we see a 32% increase in their reading test scores from beginning to the end of the year. That was our average last year. So um, that's a really, really cool program. And again, they've been around for almost, this was, last year was our 25th year. Um, so that's kind of the three programs of Care. Around
2: 150 beds at the night shelter, yep. is that right?
0: Yep, 140 beds. And you've been, I think you said you've been pretty much full since the mm-hmm. end of the first week. Yep, yeah, we opened April 6th. Of 2021, and we were full by the sixth night, and we have been full ever since. So that first year, we had just over 49,000 check-ins, wow. and that was from 2,300 unduplicated individuals. So those those 2,300 individuals checked in 49,000 times. Um, we had 59 different families stay in our four family suites, and those families had 115 kids under the age of 18. That that lived with them. So, um, it's been it's been again. You know, I, I think the need was far greater than we anticipated, just based on the number of people that we've seen come through the doors of the night shelter. Um, but we're we're really grateful to be doing it.
2: As a follow up on that, just sort of the sheer numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the things I hear from people older than older than us hmm. is, man, it just seems like there's a lot more homeless people mm-hmm. than, than when I was growing up. Sure. Is is that anecdotal, or is or are the numbers showing that there are more significantly more homeless uh, or unsheltered people living on the streets than in decades past? Mm-hmm. And if so, what do you think is
0: is causing that rise? Yeah, it's a great question. The best data that we have is something called the point in time count. It's a federally required census. The first one we did was in 2008, so we've done it every year. The Homeless Alliance is the organization that coordinates all that work, and it's a 24-hour census. So we get, they get all the volunteers, organize all them, and we go out to every service provider and every encampment that we know of in Oklahoma City. And we ask people to take a survey. It's a two-page survey. Um, I've been On these the last couple years and it's been a very eye-opening experience and something that I encourage anybody who's interested in this to go and do because you'll see things in the city that you've never seen before and I think it's important for us who are working to improve our community to understand what the reality of the situation looks like for people who are experiencing it and I'll just leave it at that and an encouragement to, to go do it at some point. But we do it every year. Uh, the Homeless Alliance organizes it, like I said. It's usually in January, February. Um, we've done it every year since 2008. So 2017, from 2017 to 2018, the difference between those two point-in-time count numbers, there was a 45% increase wow. in the number of individuals living unsheltered. So there's a total number of surveys that we count. So, again, if we go into an encampment, and there's 10 people there but only 2 of them agree to do the survey then that's then there's 2 people there we can't count unless they agree to take a survey so they estimate they say nationally whatever you get in surveys in one day multiply that by 5 or 6 and you're probably getting closer to your total number so there's does, it, that. does that track with your experience I think so i mean there's really again this is our best the best data we have there's really no way to really know sure But I think so. I mean, my experience going out on them is, is, yeah, we know there's people there, they're either not coming out or they don't want to take the survey. And so, yeah, to me, it feels like that's probably, probably accurate. So there's that overall number. How many individuals did we survey that are experiencing homelessness in Oklahoma City? But then there's subsets. So one of them is how many of them are not living in shelter? We call that, we would say that they are living unsheltered in Oklahoma City. So these are the people living in encampments, people that we find living on the street, sleeping on the sidewalk, um, those are the folks that we would say are living unsheltered in Oklahoma City. That's the number that grew by 45% from 2017 to 2018. And then from 2019 to 2020, it grew by another 47%. Wow! So, you know, and so then you look, you contextualize it with where were we in 2008? So it was the greatest percentage increase year over year since we started doing the point in time count in 2008 but it was also the greatest number that we had ever surveyed. Just in pure numbers, it was the most we'd ever counted. And then we didn't do one in 2021 because of the pandemic. We just did the 2022 when those numbers came out this summer and we're still at a 40 around 40% increase of where we were in 2018. So it's gone down a little bit. Um, and you know, again, it's like, you can look at that number and say, well, that year it was a lot colder. So more people came in shelter, which means that unsheltered number was lower, or it was warmer, so there were more people. You know, so it's hard to really pin down, like, what does that data actually mean? Can you actually extrapolate out themes that are emerging in this data trend or not? And I don't know, but that's that's the best information that we have. So to me, when people say, well, it seems like there are more individuals living on the street, it seems like it's becoming more visible. I would say, well, that actually tracks with what we're seeing in, in the point-in-time count as well. Um, if you travel around the country and you've been to places that y- you would you would see that Oklahoma isn't where other places in the country are. So I still think, compared to our population, maybe it's, n- it's not as significant as it is in other places around the United States. But I still think it's growing. And that, to me, says there's still a lot of work for us to do. Um, And then our experience at the night shelter shows the same thing. So those 2,300 unduplicated individuals represent what we would estimate is 70 to 80% of the total unsheltered population in Oklahoma City came through the doors of the night shelter just in the first year. And we were still turning away people. We still turn away people every night. So we don't actually know just based on utilization of these services how many beds we really need because everybody's full. so anyway, I, I do think that the data, the best data that we have, does support this sense that there are more individuals living unsheltered on the streets of Oklahoma City than there were 10 years ago. And uh, I know that there's a lot of folks doing a lot of really good things. And, and I know even from a city level, we're working on some things that hopefully will, will help us make some progress. And, and yes, you know, the outcomes we want are fewer people living on the streets of Oklahoma City, but we're where I would encourage us to move the conversation is less about the visibility of homelessness and the impact on businesses or, you know, the unsightliness of an encampment and more towards how what kind of community do we want to be? And how do we care for the least and the last and the lost in our community? And and does that align with our values or not? And so that's where I would say like For one person who's living unsheltered on the street, if they were my neighbor, well, they are my neighbor, if they were my friend, if they were my family member, I would want certain things for them. If they were ready for help, I would want them to have help. If they weren't ready for help, I would at least want to be checking in on them, seeing how they're doing. I would at least want to be helping them with basic medical care or access to treatment when they're ready. And so those are kind of the the basic things that we're saying that should be happening, and, and in many ways are happening, but... I think those are the things that are our best chance of starting to get ahead of what we see as a growing number of individuals living on the streets of Oklahoma City. Yeah. So the second part of that, though, was: are you able to
2: identify, or does the data point to a cause Mm -hmm. to these
0: increases that you're seeing? Uh, I think you know, there's the the conversation around affordable housing is is a legitimate one. Uh, The reality is it does take us a long time to transition someone from the night shelter or from our supportive communities program somewhere else in the community, because there's just not enough of that type of housing. Um, the wait list for those types of vouchers is pretty long. And especially after the pandemic, the demand for smaller size units is so high that landlords don't have to participate in those programs anymore. And so they don't. Um, so I I think that's, that's a big issue, but then, you know, for us, we would say that, um, There's a program in Austin, Texas. uh, It's called Community First Village. The nonprofit is called Mobile Loaves and Fishes. We've been down there a lot. They've got uh, just a really compelling model of uh, this blend of providing housing for individuals who need it with incorporating the faith community and also best practices for how to do this work. But one of the things they talk about is that housing doesn't necessarily solve homelessness, but, but community will. And it's this idea that for a lot of the folks that are experiencing homelessness, at least in my experiences, talking with them is that it's not just that they lost their house. It's that they lost all the margin that many of us have. Well, I'll speak for myself. The margin that I have that would prevent me from ever experiencing homelessness. And that's the people that I can call or the people who would help me or the people who would come looking for me if I didn't show up somewhere. Uh, It's the people who my family could depend on in times of need. And so some people in our community, they don't have that anymore. They may never have had it. They may have lost it because of things that they've done or didn't do. Um, But we believe that ultimately once somebody does transition into housing, that it's really important we focus on that community piece so that if they lose their job or if they relapse or if they're in some kind of need, they've got some sense of community that they can pull from and some margin in their life again so that they don't just end up Back on the street again, so I think that community piece is a big part of it. That ultimately, when that looks different, then so does the number of individuals living on the streets of our city.
1: So you mentioned so many different um, maybe like rungs in the ladder as far as when people the the low barrier night shelter is kind of the first rung in that ladder. People mm-hmm. kind of starting to transition from being mm-hmm. unsheltered and then moving through the process. Yeah, is there As far as those rungs go, is there one that you see more of a need of in Oklahoma City um, that we could provide more of? Whether it's the low barrier night shelters, is it medical care? Is it Mm -hmm. substance abuse care? Is it housing? What would be, if there was one you had to pick that we maybe need more of, which Mm. one would that be?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. You're you're right. I mean, it's kind of all those things. Um, We talk a lot about, we're talking a lot about shelter beds right now in Oklahoma City because we're approaching winter again. Every winter, the group of service providers who are doing this work get together and plan what is our cold weather contingency plan going to be. So when it gets below 32 degrees, how are we going to help individuals who might not otherwise access shelter or services get access to it. So we all say, okay, I could probably City Care Night Shelter could probably fit 15 cots in our hallways. So that's that's what we're going to offer to this response. Other service providers do the same thing. So how can you open up and what can you offer? We're, every year we try to figure out the best possible solution. Last year, you may remember, we opened uh, the Willard Community Center. Homeless Alliance staffed it. They did all the service provision there. And when it got below freezing, they would, or when it was forecasted to go below freezing, they would open this place up. And it, the difficulty in that is that they look at the utilization rates and they say, well, we had 250 beds in the cold weather contingency plan and we never got above 230. And, and so then I would say, well, we're full at the night shelter every night. And I don't necessarily know that people are going to leave their encampment, their belongings, their, whatever basic sense of community they have to come into a shelter. And they may not know if it's 31 degrees or 33 degrees and even if it is below freezing, they may not know, is there a bed here? Or they, they may not be comfortable coming into that facility at all. So we look at these utilization rates and we say, well, we've got enough capacity in the system, but then there are service providers who are doing this work all year long that are consistently full. And we say, well, we it's not actually an emergency night shelter. It's not actually a cold weather contingency plan. We actually just need to know how many beds do we need as a community? And, and I feel like that's the first question to answer is, do we have enough places for people to come, where we're not everybody's not having to turn people away? And then you're right, you know. Beyond that, we we talked about this when you all came through, you know. But we get a lot of people who are discharged from local hospitals dropped off at the night shelter, and it's a conversation that we've had with the hospitals. Um, they're all interested in working on a solution. Uh, there's a pilot program going on right now at Cardinal House that Patrick Raglo and Catholic Charities are heading up that uh, I believe they're expanding the offerings that they have there in terms of number of beds. So I'm excited to see that. It's, it's, a, it's a significant need in the community. It's, it's folks who are, the hospital would say, are well enough to be discharged, um, but would also acknowledge they're really not quite well enough to be back on the street. And they end up cycling back into the emergency room, back into the hospital system, back out. And then they come to us and then a lot of times we're not equipped to provide the kind of medical care that they come to us in need of. So we're doing the best that we can and then we may not see them again. Or they may end up, you know, the next day somebody sees them on the side of the street, calls an ambulance, they're back in the hospital again. So there's there's national models and examples out there of respite care programs that partner local hospitals with service providers like us and others in the city where we get thirty days with them and the hospital helps staff it. They help provide that basic medical care. During that 30 days, we're working on housing plans. So at the end of that time, they've recovered a little bit and they're also not transitioning back onto the street. They're transitioning back into, into some sense of community and housing. So that's a model that um, I'm excited to see this pilot program in Oklahoma City. And I, I know is a significant need and then yet you know you mentioned it housing is another big one um which is obviously uh, a huge conversation and a lot of work that goes into that but i'll I'll end with just saying the city's been working on a plan the service providers this uh, over this past seven months um, have been getting together and working with some folks from houston to help us kind of put into action the mayor's task force on homelessness so i'm encouraged that there's a lot of conversations happening that haven't happened in a while and I think we're getting to a place where we can actually start to outline some goals, some metrics, and decide on how we're going to measure our progress towards meeting those goals. I want to ask you, um, you know, for, for,
2: for the people that listen to this podcast that are that are still listening, because mm-hmm. you know, OCPA is a free market think tank. Mm-hmm. Our audience is center right. Um, there seems to be sort of two competing narratives on on both sides of the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. One is, which probably our audience falls more into, right? Like these people are in this situation because of decisions that they made. Mm -hmm. And then I think there's sort of on the other side, uh, probably an equally problematic idea that, like, well, these people are just victims. Um, You know, the oppression that is sort of inerrant in the system is what led them there, and basically stripping them of all agency. For decisions that that people make, mm-hmm. so I'm wondering, as somebody who, and I have no idea where you are, sort of like politically now, but you've you've worked sort of in the same space as us for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Mm-hmm. What role does individual initiative, personal responsibility, which are two of OCPA's core um, values, what role do those play? And sort of like, you know, I have a, I have a sense that the answer is somewhere in the middle, right? Like, there's there actually are things that that cause people to 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 go into an unsheltered lifestyle that are mm-hmm. out of their control, but then also there's also some some personal choices that are being made as well. And yeah. you know, how do you you know, to the extent that personal responsibility does play a role there, how do you um, battle the the narrative that like, well you're moralizing or, mm-hmm. or whatever?
0: Yeah. It's, it's something that comes up a lot, and I'm really grateful, especially in the context that we live in in Oklahoma, to have the opportunity to have those conversations, because I think it's helpful. I mean, the reality is that there are a lot of people who have those concerns, and when we pursued opening a night shelter, that was a lot of the pushback that we got. Well, if you don't have any requirements, then are people really going to change? They're just going to take advantage of you, you know, fill in the blank. They're just gonna do this. And oftentimes, I, I like to, my preference is to start those conversations with an encouragement to go and spend time at the night shelter or anywhere that's providing these kinds of services. And if you're really interested in understanding on a deeper level what's going on, and, and if you're like me and an experience of, of homelessness is not part of your story, then my encouragement is to go spend time with people That that is a part of their story. And spend time getting to know them, spend time getting to hear their story. And, and then if you're interested beyond that, come tour some of these facilities. If you're interested beyond that, come on a point-in-time count. see some of these things. If you're interested beyond that, there's a reading list of, of some things that I would encourage somebody to read. Um, there's some places that I would encourage somebody to go visit. And after the end of that process, if you still got questions then, and and even along the way, like, yes, let's sit down and talk about those things. Um, so when I have the opportunity to have that conversation with people, that's kind of where I start is nobody sat me down seven years ago and said, you're going to do these things, meet these people, have these experiences. Your heart's going to change. Your mind's going to change. And at the end of it, you're going to give your life to this work. That's not how it happened for me, and I don't think that's how it happens naturally. I think it is the reality of of wrestling with personal experiences and the stories of individuals that shape our hearts and minds and Yes, there were people along the way that I asked questions. there were resources that helped me navigate what I was experiencing and what I was feeling and and why I was feeling challenged so i you know I want to offer those as well, but that's kind of where I start, and then beyond that, I would say. For a person who's asking those questions, I think a helpful thought exercise to begin with is thinking through what it would take. So I ask myself this. What would it take for me to end up on the streets of Oklahoma City? I take a second and I think about how many people would have to give up on me for that to take place. I think about how many people would have to ignore my call. Um, I think about the the financial resources that would have to run out for that to be a reality for my family and I. I think about the relationships that would have to fall through for that to be a reality. Um, I think about even the things that I was taught growing up that I would have to let go of and move away from for that to be something that would happen to me. And And then I start to ask, like, of all of those things, how many of those things that I was taught, how many of those things that I have in my life are things that I was given? That I was, I was born into a life that this was just going to be the reality for me. And even when I say, well, I'm a hard worker, I have initiative, who taught me that? That wasn't, that wasn't inherent in my DNA, that was something that my father and mother taught me. So even this idea of like, I know how to do hard things, I know how to work hard, I know how to take care of myself, are things that were modeled for me that I saw. So beyond that, beyond things that I was given, yes, there are some things that maybe I could say, okay, I've earned this in life. But but again, I, I, going through that thought exercise, I don't think you can start there because it's not about posturing ourselves in a way where we can win an argument. It's about opening up our hearts to the idea that there are people out there who have different stories than us, and, and uh, Father Greg Boyle is somebody that I've really appreciated following his work in the, in the books that he's written, but he talks about, you know, we seek a compassion, so this is where we start to incorporate the reality that I am a person of faith. So beyond these intellectual concepts of, you know, like we're talking about personal responsibility, what is if if my faith is the most important thing to me in my life and the person i follow has said th- certain things and teaches certain things and that should be the first lens through which i i view any decision that i make or how i respond to something that's that's what i have to go with even if it might go against something that i've been taught growing up or even if it goes against a political you know affiliation or something like that like that has to be the first lens so Greg Boyle says, we seek a compassion that uh, stands in awe at what the poor have had to carry rather than in judgment at how they carry it. So that's how I would try to start that conversation with somebody is saying, rather than taking a critical look at what somebody has or has not done that's gotten them into the situation, why don't we spend some time developing relationships with people who have had that experience or are in that experience to try and learn more? And then maybe over a period of time, through relationship and through deep contemplation and through conversations, we might come to a conclusion about what this means for you individually. So that's, again, that's a very like one-on-one kind of process. I know that that can happen in group settings or even on, like we're doing right now on a podcast, like challenging somebody to think about these things and go through that process. But the reality is it's not a simple answer. Um, So... I mean that's that's kind of one thing, but yeah. I, when we went through the night shelter, we talked about what is the what is the data. Okay, so that's that's my like long-winded answer of like how I would prefer to have that conversation. But then I think you can look at what does the data show. So when we look at those twenty-three hundred individuals that came through the doors of the night shelter for the first year, we said, well, how many times did those unduplicated individuals stay with us? So the first group was like below five stays, between one and five stays, and it was 53% of those guests. So half of the people that we saw, that came in, they got the help that they needed, and we never saw them again. So for us, again, that illustrates the point that if getting help, getting your ID, or getting help, getting access to treatment, or getting help transitioning into housing again, had a prerequisite of having an ID or being sober or complying with the program or staying 30 days, half of the people we served in Oklahoma City wouldn't have come. So that to me, outside of that that long-winded answer of like, how would I prefer to have that conversation, speaks to what's the reality of the services that we're offering there? And does it address those questions people have about personal responsibility, pulling yourself up, up by your bootstraps when we would say, well, you, you have to have a pair of boots on to pull bootstraps. And some of the folks that we get to serve at the night shelter, whether they never had them to begin with or their their own decisions brought them to a point where they don't have them anymore, we're just acknowledging that there's got to be some place that meets that group of people where they're at. So then you back it out to like 90 days, and it was 94% of those people. So there's no way to say, is that 90 days straight or is it 90 days split up throughout the year? It's probably a mix of both. But what that shows us is the night shelter becomes a home base for 94% of the people. We're a home base where throughout the year they come to us when it's really cold outside or when it's really hot outside or when they're just tired of doing whatever they're doing. And we have an opportunity to have a touch point with them, deepen that relationship with them, continue the work that needs to take place for them to transition out of the situation that they're in. And then that last group is, who stayed with us between nine months and a year? And it was 11 people, 0.47%. And one of those, I mentioned this when we went through the tour, that one of those folks just transitioned into housing last month. And it, it took him over a year with us to get to a place where he was ready to transition into housing. And it was a whole list of things that we had to work through to get to a point where he was ready to make that transition. And for people like that, again, it to us is an honor to walk alongside him for as long as it takes to get to that point. Because at the end of the day, somebody in our community has to be doing that work. And if, and if the intellectual questions get you caught up in, do they deserve it? Should they be given these things? Are they earning it in some way? I would say, before we get to those questions, why don't you come develop some relationships with folks and see some of these things, contemplate some of these things, and see if those questions still remain after that process. And if they do, then yeah, let's dig into it. Let's talk about it. So, but I want to push back just a little bit, if I can.
2: Yeah. It seems to me that there's there's two questions we can ask, or two ways we can look at it. Mm -hmm. We can look at it from the standpoint of people who are already experiencing homelessness or are unsheltered, right? Mm -hmm. And I... I take your your comment about you know needing boots to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and that's sort of its own conversation. And I think that's the work that you're that you're primarily engaged in. Mm-hmm. But I think there's this other question of about like root causes and mm-hmm. like how do we prevent that person from ever having to go to the day shelter? So certainly, you know, the three of us born into great families, you know, we have we were born into sort of civil society. I get all of that. I get all of that. Um, but I'm also wondering, you know, even when you were talking through like the things that, that would have to happen or that would have to fall into place mm-hmm. or, or the dominoes that would lead you to needing the, shel- the or the, the services that you yourself provide, like part of that is, is, is given to you. But at the same time, it's like not everybody born into poverty stays in poverty and not everybody born into great privilege stays in great privilege right Mm -hmm. i mean like so there there is some level of agency there sure um you know you and i are both people of faith you know our our faith communities are huge parts of our of that that civil society net right Mm -hmm. so that's part of that's part of it as well um so i'm curious I'm I'm less curious about saying about asking questions about whether so and so deserves the services you're provided or you're providing, or um, you know, is it proper or mm-hmm. right I mean I, I agree with you on all of that, right? Like the yeah. people who are there, we need to we need to help them get out. Mm-hmm. But also it's like if, if they're just replaced by somebody else, mm-hmm. it's like at some level it feels like we're spinning our wheels even if that work is necessary and good. Mm-hmm. So you know, one of the things that we're working on here is sort of mainstreaming this idea of the success sequence, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, it, are you more likely to experience homelessness if you're born into uh, a one-parent family, mm-hmm. right? I, I suspect you probably are, right? Um, You know, so how do we, you know, because I, I think one of the things that we would say is, like, Schools need to be teaching this stuff, right? So, like, Ian Rowe uh, from AEI uh, came and talked to us not too long ago. We've talked about this on the podcast. And one of the things that he said that really struck me was it's less about the family you're from, which is the thing that we're talking about, and is important, and it's more about the family you form. Hmm. So, like, how do we, I think starting with kids, how do we teach kids, like, if you will graduate high school, Mm -hmm. get a job, get married, and do sort of all those things before you have kids, like, you have an almost insignificant chance of living in poverty, much less being unsheltered or homeless, right? And then your chances of moving from, like, uh, poverty to the middle class jumps by over 50%. So, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of... I think we have to, I think what you're doing is great, and I totally agree with a lot of what you said, but I also want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure that we're not getting one person out of, you know, into housing Mm -hmm. and and moved out of homelessness
0: only to see two more walk in the door. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And so that was actually one of the reasons why Larry and Maisie started WizKids, Kids their experience serving this breakfast downtown and developing relationships with people experiencing homelessness in Oklahoma City led them to say kind of the same thing. Like, what could we be doing on the front end? So, they, you know, there's this analogy that you hear about pulling people out of the river and who who goes upriver and sees where folks are falling in? Mm-hmm. And so they said, like, is there anything we can do upriver? And they started WizKids as a way to invest in kids' lives who, you know, reading and literacy rates is one of those indicators you're talking about. So, Is that a way, developing a positive mentor-type relationship early on in their life, focusing on literacy, sharing faith, a way to get on the front end of some of that stuff? And they felt like it was, and that was why they started WizKids. And then I would say today, the approach has to be both of those things. So somebody has to keep pulling people out of the river. Sure. And somebody also has to be drawing the eyes of the community upriver as well and saying we have to be doing something about these things up here. So you know, we would say that the goal ultimately is that experiences of homelessness are as rare and brief as possible. So if you need help, you can get it right away, whatever that looks like. And we're gonna make that experience again as rare and brief as possible so that the resources we have can continue to snowball upstream so there's um, a, a group called the Built for Zero Coalition, and there's five communities in the United States that have reached what is called functional zero in chronic homelessness. So again, let's let's talk about data. Let's get into the numbers. Let's look at communities around the United States that are actually doing this really well. These are communities that have gotten to a point where they don't have anybody who has experienced homelessness longer than one year. That's what chronic homelessness is defined as. So um, again, you can Google Built for Zero Coalition, they've got case studies for each of these communities. Several of them have gone from eliminating chronic homelessness to now eliminating veteran homelessness and are now focused on youth homelessness. So each one of these groups they identify and they marshal the community's resources, service providers, foundations and philanthropists, city and state government on these key priorities. And they say, for the next five years, this is what we're focused on. We're gonna address this part of the system they do it, and then they're able to say, okay, now here's the next thing we're going to focus on. So, again, it's kind of like with the work we talk about in justice. Excuse me. Oklahoma is not the first place to wrestle with these things. We can look to other communities and how they've done this to say that, yeah, actually, progress is, metrics are definable and progress is possible. So let's follow some of these models. I don't want to keep you here too long. I don't know if you have to run, run out a little bit, but I wanted to ask
1: how some of this is related to your work in criminal justice. Mm. How are there things that have kind of the state has done? Like how often are these people involved in the criminal justice system and are there things that we could do or are doing that are making it worse or better yeah. um, to kind of help these people transition either from the criminal justice system to instead of coming out of there mm-hmm. to homelessness
0: or those people who are in homelessness avoiding getting caught in that system as well? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, they, they def there's a lot of overlap. And the reality is, many times, and I'll just speak specific to Oklahoma County, when folks are in need, and they're exhibiting some kind of behavior, or they've done something um, that causes them to end up, you know, in the county jail, for example, what they really need is they need some kind of treatment. But, but we don't have a lot of that available in the community. And so that's the best option we have most times is to is to put them there. Um, And we've made a lot of strides. Um, So I wanna acknowledge that too, that over the last five years, uh, there has been a lot of progress and I think we're gonna continue making that progress. But yeah, there's a lot of overlap in the people that we see at the night shelter who have been involved in the justice system in some way. Um, The challenges that they face in accessing housing, a lot of times do have to do with their criminal history and background. one of the reasons we partner with the diversion hub they're doing incredible work we help with their housing navigation team and we have uh team members who office at the diversion hub helping them do that because that's the kind of help they need the person coming out of the county jail and and the justice system and working with the diversion hub literally needs somebody whose specialty is navigating the housing system so again that's in some form, a synthetic version of that margin that comes from community, that literally is a friend who's like, hey, let me help you figure this out. Let me help you get into housing. And the whole goal is, let's figure out some of these things so that you, when you go back in front of the judge, we can say, here's all the things that you've accomplished. And maybe that will help keep you out of this, this system. And so, again, you know, it's not bypassing or rationalizing away the very real concerns that I get people have about individuals who have experienced homelessness or people who are involved in the justice system. It's not ignoring those things. It's saying, yes, I understand that concern, but we have to start somewhere. We have to do something. And for the folks that are willing to engage in this process and ready to engage in this process, who are we to say no? If we, Especially if we know that that, that, that actually oftentimes is more effective at achieving the long-term outcomes that we really want, which is this person exiting this part of the system, being integrated into the community somewhere where they don't need these services anymore. That's the long-term outcome we all want. And this oftentimes is a more cost-effective way to do it. I don't often talk about the financial benefit of it because I think that's so far down on the list of reasons Mm -hmm. why we should be doing these things, but I get that for some folks that might be one or two on their list. That might be the reason why you might be interested in supporting this but i think there's there's many other reasons why but i think the reality is like acknowledging and hearing those concerns and saying yes i understand that those are valid but also here's why we believe we've got to start somewhere awesome well I wish we could have gotten to your time on
2: the part of board <laughs> uh, I think that's probably deserves an ep- that probably deserves yeah. an episode on its own we'll so still. I hope you'll consider coming back yeah, absolutely't beat up on you too
0: bad no it's great I love the conversation and the reality is these are the kinds of conversations that we have in the community um, and, and that's another aside from providing the services that we do at city care we view the large part of our work in the community is helping facilitate these kinds of conversations for folks that I mean we see it. We all see it. We're all interested, we're all impacted by it. So let's talk about it. So I appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, for people who want to support your work, what 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 should they do? Yeah, they go to our website org. if you want to come check out the night shelter. We do tours once a week. We would love to host you and and have uh, you know, continue this conversation if they're interested.
2: Yeah. Curtis and I did it. It was, yeah, was, was eye opening. Um, we didn't really t- we didn't we didn't talk about it here, but the uh, the Area you have for families mm-hmm. is maybe one of the coolest things that I've seen. Um, yeah, thank you. One of the more emotional experience I've had in the last uh, in the last month. So, yeah.
0: uh, very cool. Appreciate you coming on. Yeah, thank you uh, for having me. Thanks so much.